Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game, the living card game. We're sometimes fortnightly, we're sometimes monthly. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm, I'm excited to record. It feels like it's been a while since we've sat down at this to record. Yeah, it does feel like that, doesn't it? I was thinking the same as I was doing the intro. Yeah, and it's been it's been a busy few weeks for Arkham, really, hasn't it? It has been, yeah, yeah. It just feels like we were in a kind of a lull, and now the news is all ramping up, and there was even a live stream, and suddenly it's all starting to pick up again. Yeah, and, and I've got, I said to you earlier, I've got my first in-person game for some time, uh, for, for over a year this weekend, so I've been excitedly getting ready for that. Yeah, I was going to say, how are you feeling about it? But I imagine excitement is front and centre there. Uh, yeah, certainly, yeah. I'm trying to remember, I just realised, like, oh yeah, I've got to find where I put my tokens and <laughs> find all yeah. my player cards and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, and you're diving into Return to the Circle Undone. I, I think Regular Circle Undone. I'm, oh, Regular Circle. Yeah, t- teaching teaching a new player. Fantastic. With the, one of the hardest cycles. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Arkham. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. That'd be great. We'll have to compare notes because I'm playing through Return to Circle Undone at the moment. And yeah, seeing how they've tuned the difficulty, if at all, is quite enjoyable. Yeah. So th- this week we're talking about an interesting topic. I said to Frank earlier, he's he's mentioned it to me several times <laughs> over the past the past weeks. Uh, yeah. Always like, oh, and when we finally do this episode, so I've always had the feeling he's it's one who's been keen to to dive into. Um, so I'm quite <laughs> excited. Yeah. Really. Yeah. So would open would, Frank up and <laughs> let him loose. Yeah. So then I produce my prepared notes. It's a three-hour lecture that I've been slowly writing. Anyway, yes, sorry, getting carried away. The starting point for me for this topic was actually many different things, which I think is often the case with our episodes, isn't it? We we mention one thing and then we spot other things that correspond to it. Like with the movement episode, we had various different comments we'd made about movement and they coalesced into an episode. And for me, the starting point for this discussion was when we were preparing for Think on Your Feet, The Dream Eaters. And so it was really you diving into playing solo. And some of the conversations we had about building decks in preparation for that, there was this extra element of, but the deck needs to work solo that I think we don't always have in our conversations when we're talking about decks. Yeah, we kind of know that most of the time you're building a deck, it's multiplayer because you play predominantly multiplayer. And if I'm showing you a solo deck, I say to you, it's a solo deck. So it's sort of a given. But there was something about the dynamic there that shook things up and got me thinking about how much do we take it for granted that solo and multiplayer are the same and how different are they? So that's, I suppose, the underpinning question for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm curious to pick your brain, I guess, and just understand more the considerations for when you're making a deck for solo play. And and hopefully that's that's what the listeners are interested in as well. Or maybe vice versa, maybe they're more interested in how things differ when you get to multiplayer. Yeah, I was going to say and vice versa, because again, it's, it's essentially us interrogating our own biases and judgments and the things that have just come to be how we think about the game without questioning it 
and sometimes it's worth questioning those things. And by the way, when I've been saying we, I don't just mean you and me, Peter. I mean, we as a community as well, that I've noticed recently on a couple of places online, people are getting much better at saying this deck is a deck for two player. The partner is so-and-so and the campaign is Forgotten Age. The campaign is Path to Carcosa. And actually saying that information up front is really helpful for then how people respond to the deck. And of course, that means if you need to offer that information, that means that information is pertinent. That's, I think, where I started to think, huh, maybe solo is actually quite different from multiplayer. So for this discussion, I always like to start with some kind of uh, anatomy or sorting out our terms or things like that. So I've put in our notes that when we're talking about solo, we're talking about a single investigator. And when we're talking about multiplayer, we're talking about two or more investigators. So I'm really sorry to all the two-handed solo players out there. (laughs) You're getting lumped in multiplayer. And the reason I want to talk about it in that way is that I think the difference between a single investigator and any other number of investigator is bigger than any of the differences between two, three, and four player. So that's that's why I kind of wanted to lay that out at the start. Does that sound good? That sounds good to me. Yeah, absolutely. And the example I give about why it's so different is you're playing any scenario and first mythos, you draw an enemy. If you're playing two or more players, you have multiple investigators who might have options to deal with that enemy. And they might even just use the option of, well, I'll take most of my turn and then I'll engage the enemy off you and you still get a whole turn. But in solo, there's no other investigator to do that. So if you draw an enemy and you can't deal with it, action one, your turn is significantly hampered. Yes. So that's, for me, why solo is so different from even two-player um, as a sort of starting point. It's the thing that's, that struck me when I've played solo is just how much at the mercy of the, of the encounter deck you are. If, mm. if an encounter card comes up, which is, say, two actions to clear, there's no one else yeah. to help clear that. Uh, you've just got to do it, and that's two-thirds of your turn gone. Mm. Yeah. Same if an enemy turns up. If, if, if an enemy turns yeah. up, which needs three actions to kill, you, you can't make any progress in the rest of the scenario while you're dealing with that. Yeah, absolutely right. And when you say it's, you know, it's two of your actions to clear that treachery or whatever it is, having only one action to do anything can feel really paltry as well. It's like, well, I'll move, a move one yeah. location <laughs> or I'll get a clue. You can really start to feel like you're grinding to a halt. So, so yeah, so that's, I think, as a, I think that is the, the mercy of the encounter deck is really, it floats around in the background of this discussion, I think. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So where do we go next? I guess really, I mean, we've, we've started there, but let's really lock down the differences between playing solo, one investigator and playing with multiple investigators. Hmm. Because I think what that's going to do is lead us on to how we prepare to meet those challenges. And then from then on, we start to talk about how we build our decks and things like that. So, so we talked about the encounter deck. We've got, we're at the mercy of the encounter deck and we need to be able to deal with whatever the encounter deck throws up without it totally halting our progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so if you get yeah. stuck with a frozen in fear or something like that, Mm-hmm. ideally yeah. being able yeah. to deal with that so that it doesn't sap a third of our actions for the rest of the game. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, or enemies if we need to be able to evade or or I'm sort of, I'm already talking about challenges, right? So so yeah, dive in. Yeah, okay. So I, I guess I guess yeah, like I say, I think your deck needs to be able to deal with everything that can come out of the encounter deck. And one of the things that's that's always struck me when we've talked about solo is how much you talk about the specific challenges in the encounter deck. Mm. And we did that quite a lot for Think on Think on Your Feet as well, didn't we? Yes. You sort of took that on of, okay, I'm going to look ahead at a couple of scenarios. I don't think there's anything in here that's too threatening. Yeah, I remember particularly for Thousand Shapes of Horror, you're like, ooh, there's a lot of willpower treacheries coming up. And I'm Agnes with five willpower. I'm not worried about that. You sort of, you didn't need to think about what your solution was. Your solution was play a good investigator. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so I think that that's one thing that's always struck me as being a, something uniquely solo player, having a really robust understanding of what's in the encounter deck and what other, I guess, scenario based challenges or, or progress blocking challenges you'll face. If there's mm-hmm. a, if there's a crucial test you need to pass, to get past a certain point in the scenario, you need to plan a way to do that into your deck. Yeah. And I'd say first playthroughs, I'm not a particularly strong first play player because I find some of those speed bumps, they can be really difficult in solo. You you don't have a team of four of you, someone saying, oh, actually, yeah, I do have high enough agility. I can smash that test, whatever it is. You can just find a speed bump that can be really uncomfortable early on Uh, an example i think as well is something like devil reef and piloting the boat if you're not really efficient in solo about moving the boat and making sure you get on and off the boat quickly and move that scenario can feel gigantic and difficult to traverse and all of that kind of thing and it's a nice difference i think between solo and multiplayer because in multiplayer the, the challenge there is making sure everyone gets on and off the boat at the right time you, know, you don't want one player holding up everyone else or being left behind. But the I suppose the pressure is more on keeping the team together there than the solo player using their actions as efficiently as possible to keep moving and keep exploring. The other thing I was going to highlight as being a difference is the number of clues on locations. Mm. This seems like a really obvious one, right? We've got that little investigator symbol. That mm-hmm. pops up all over the place on the health of enemies, on doom thresholds. But mm-hmm. the place I think we probably see it most is in the number of clues on a location. Yeah, And locations tend to be one clue per investigator, two clues per investigator, or sometimes three clues per investigator, if they're not mm-hmm. just a flat number of one, zero, one, or two. I do, have we had any four-eye invest, um, locations? Maybe there's some lurking that are, that are kind of super challenges. <laughs> yeah, I'm struggling to think of one. There might be one somewhere. Shout at your podcast now, listener. <laughs> <laughs> the obvious one that we both are forgetting while we record live. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, we will talk about challenges soon or, or deck building soon. So I don't want to get into too many specifics at this point. But I guess mm. that my perception is always that there's lots of tools for gaining one or two clues mm-hmm. uh, in a single action. So like a fingerprint kit or a deduction or working a hunch. And in yeah. solo, they can potentially clear off a whole location, especially if that's a location with a high shroud value. 
Mm. So you know you've got a five shroud location coming up that has one eye clues on it. That's a single clue in solo. You've got a working a hunch in your deck. You keep that ready for that that location, and then just boop, you've got the clue. You don't need to worry about it at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned clue counts because it, yeah, it does seem like a pretty simple thing, but the change up for clues between one and two is a significant jump. In the same way that you know, going up to three health with an enemy goes from a single action to a double action. So having those options in your deck is really important for solo, but in a different way, I suppose. If I'm building a clue-getting deck in multiplayer, I know we're going to get to deck building in a moment. I maybe want lots of those compression options. I want the fingerprint kits and the deductions. Yeah. And in solo, maybe if I'm going to see mostly one-eye locations, what I want is the working a hunch, which can either buy me a second clue at a high shroud location or just buy me a single clue somewhere. Um, it's one of the reasons I really like Intel Report because it's one or two clues, so it gives you the option to to toggle it depending on whether you're playing solo or multiplayer. Whether yeah, all sorts of options come up with that card. I mean, here's a question which maybe demonstrates this. Can you think off the top of your head the number of clues you need to get through the gathering? I've sprung this two, on you. Three, four. <laughs> I think there are six clues in total to get, and you only need five of them. Yeah. Yeah. Is so, it two in the first room? Two in the study? I think it is, yeah. Yeah, two in the study, and then each of the other rooms have two eye. Yeah. But you only need three eye to advance. So, yeah, six six clues. Yeah. What I was going to say, and thank you for, for confirming that, <laughs> you probably you can count on one hand the number of clues you'll need in solo for some scenarios. Mm. And five, yeah, oh, you can just yeah. exactly yeah, count just on about. one hand. But then as soon as you go to two players, that's 10 clues. Three players, mm-hmm. you're up to 15 clues you need to get. Because of the way deck building works, you'll be offloading a lot of your clue power or clue getting onto one player. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they need to do a lot more cluing than the same. <laughs> the- it's it's more than like multiplying up. I, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. The maths is making my head hurt. <laughs> yeah, is it something like you know you might end up in three player? It's all basically one person who probably needs to get those fifteen clues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so it's it's not the same proportion of your deck as it would be in solo dedicated to getting yeah. clues. But but at the same token, because you can count the number of clues you need to get, you can, you can just count right. Uh, you can really have a robust plan in your deck for getting those clues. That would be my perception, yeah. and I don't know how that bears out in practice. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that is normally the case. Of course, that gets skewed with scenario- different scenarios. We'll use clues in different ways, or we'll ask you to get clues in different ways. But you absolutely can have a sense in solo of what's my solution for this high shroud location, or how do I do that as quickly as efficiently, or even just... I often find I'm like, right, if I play this Intel report now, that's my Intel reports done unless I can loop my deck. And a few people have fed back to me that they think I draw a lot of cards. It's like I do because I've put solutions in my deck to answer specific problems. Hmm. Drawing cards is the sort of the luxury that I try and afford myself in a card game. So yeah, well, I mean, we've we've strayed a little bit into deck building there. And I think, I think that's going to be a, the next topic that maybe we turn to i'm just thinking if there are other differences between playing solo and multiplayer so we've talked we've talked about 
the, the you need to be prepared for the entirety of the encounter deck, and that includes enemies. Mm-hmm. We've talked about any progression stopping elements of the scenario that you'll you need to be able to deal with just in the one deck rather than across across the decks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've talked about the clues on locations. Is there anything else you think we need to look at? I don't think so. I think when we flip it on its head, in multiplayer, you might also need to be able to deal with the encounter deck comboing you in a way that in solo you might not need to deal with because it's so much less likely to happen. So you could have that Essex County Express first turn defeat in multiplayer that's impossible to have in in solo where you draw a cultist draw a mysterious chanting draw an ancient evils <laughs> yes yes and then you're screwed <laughs> that's 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 your four doom and you're done that's not something you can prepare for in multiplayer but more generally in multiplayer you might not just be thinking about how do we deal with individual enemies but you might have thoughts about well what do we do if we all draw enemies or if we all get hit by damage and horror in a single round, things like that, where you start start thinking about how do we respond as a team to the encounter deck rather than just as a group of individuals. Yeah. I think that's that's in there. Yeah, and you're a big fan of something like you handle this one. Yes, yes. Pass. You know that's that's multiplayer encounter deck control. <laughs> Pass the card that the rogue can't handle to someone who can. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, taunt is taunt's basically the same, right? Yeah, yeah. Engage. Taunt, let me handle this. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, uh, agreed, agreed. Well, then, should we move on to talk more about how we prepare for scenarios? We've already started to touch on this. Yeah, you've put some some numbers down in our notes, Frank. Do you want to talk us through those? Yeah, yeah. So, my headline for how do we prepare for a scenario in solo or in multiplayer is in at Arkham DB stage, when you build your deck, hmm. the the point of when we build your deck is the first opportunity you can start thinking about the campaign or the scenario and what obstacles you face. And at that point, you can start thinking about not just what would be nice cards for this deck, but what would be nice cards for this scenario. So I, back when I was talking to you about Agnes in Think on Your Feet, had suggested to you six to eight cards per task. Yeah. So... For instance, in that Agnes deck, you started out with two Sixth Sense, two Drawn to the Flame, two Read the Signs. Is that right? I think you started with six cards like that. I think you upgraded out of some of them. I think so, because I think I treated yeah. Mind's Eye almost as a way to just investigate at a high intellect if I yeah. needed to. You then went to three Mind's Eye. Yeah, so so that idea of the six cards there that do do what you need them to do, or you can even go higher than that and, and go to, to eight. So say um, the solo Leo deck I have on my, my table at the moment, he's for clues, he's got two flashlight, two scene of the crime, two intel report, and two perception. And you could add to that that take the initiative at a pinch could help me get a clue. It gets me up to intellect six at the start of the turn. So, you know, a high shroud location that I really need to get or even just need to rush ahead. Um, so that's, yeah eight to ten cards in the deck that might work towards clues, which is a third of your deck. You know, it's quite a big chunk of chunk of the deck. Um, and way back when, when we talked about deck building, we talked about dividing your deck up by assets, events, and skills. But more and more, I think about my deck in terms of really 
getting clues, managing enemies, staying alive, and then miscellaneous other. And for most investigators, that seems to be the way forwards. Do you think this is a real departure from the idea that you pick a focus for your deck and the cards you put into your deck build upon that focus? Or do you think those two things can exist side by side? Yeah, great question. I've sprung this one on you as well. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. Really good question. Because there's something about if you're covering all bases that does imply that you're, you're diluting what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And I think for some reason I have Mark Harrigan floating around in my head that maybe you do still have, say, the focus on I'm going to damage enemies, I'm going to heal myself, but you turn that focus to doing what you need to do. Or another example might be, say, Preston. Like, there's so many investigators that behave oddly that are outliers to this, I think. You know, Preston, your focus can be, I'm going to build an army of allies who I'm going to then pay to do things for me. Yeah. But that then means that, say, you're too... Lola Santiago, your two Intel report, your two look what I found. They you still end up with sort of the six to eight cards per task. It's just that he does it in a completely different way. He builds an army of allies in that in that deck that I've talked about before on the show. I'm not sure if I'm answering no, it's particularly I well there. Don't yeah. know whether it's got a, a, an easy answer to be honest. I mean, but before we started recording, you sent me a Yorick deck list. Mm. Said this this was a, it's a that was a solo deck, right? It was, yeah. And the thing that jumped out to me is that the lack of cards that interacted with Yorick's ability in, in, in a very yeah. obvious way. There was no leather coats. There was no... Do I mean leather coat or leather jacket? Leather coat. Leather coat, yeah. Um, Cherish keepsakes, not there. Exactly, yeah, yeah. There was, there was cards... There was a couple of cards that you could recycle reasonably. Mm-hmm. But largely, that was... It wasn't quite the case there. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's as a result of having to have this, your deck really dedicating parts of your deck to doing the different bits you need to do as a solo investigator? Mm. So there's less space to play around with those kind of synergies unless you can really pack them in to within each kind of the, the, the tasks you need to do. Yeah, yeah, I think quite possibly. And I think also before this episode, you read one of the notes I put where I put avoiding trying things out for solo. And yeah. You said, what do you mean by that? I think that what you've just illustrated is exactly what I meant by that. It's like, if I want to do my, my Yorick deck, that's going to recur keepsakes and leather coats. And that's not a, a crazy thing to try out, but that then immediately takes a focus off winning the scenario. And it's this thing I want to try out. And it could be that that thing is in service of making progress. Maybe I take lots of attacks of opportunities to just keep pushing on and and it helps me win anyway. But yeah, there's something there for me around trying out the funky thing might actually just... Deck space is so tight, basically. It's really hard. The other thing that has always struck me, and this isn't something... Well, I guess we kind of touched on it. You need to be ready to deal with the... Much more so, I think, than, than multiplayer. You need to be ready to deal with the scenario quickly. Mm-hmm. There's always seems to be less time to build up an engine of cards. From the very first turn, there's there could be cards coming out which will stop you dead mm-hmm. um, if you're not able to deal with them at that point, right? You don't have the flex of having 
even just a guardian there to try and punch something, punch an enemy yeah. that, that's turned up, or, or soak some hits, because you can't do anything else while that enemy's there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's there's no there's no luxury. I mean, there are there are multiplayer scenarios that pressure your early time in the, in the game more. There's mm-hmm. the, we all know there's scenarios where it's like, well, you've got to hit the ground running here, mm-hmm. or else you're not going to make the progress. But I feel in solo that's really multiplied. Yeah, and the clue example actually is really, really fits here neatly. I think if I'm playing Mark Harrigan or Preston or whoever, and turn one I want to get a clue, move to a new location, play an asset. If I don't have an option to get that clue out of the gate, already I'm kind of spinning my wheels. And if Mark or Preston was playing with other players, maybe they just say, "Well, I'm taking the turn to set up. I'm playing some weapons. I'm getting ready." And their teammates aren't saying to them, I need you to get that one clue right this minute. But in solo, I think the pressure is on that if you want to move on or you want to make progress, it's all on you. So not seeing that flashlight or old key ring right at the start means you're thinking, what am I doing? Am I digging in my deck to make sure I've got a clue solution? And that's again where the, the six to eight comes from for me about having enough of a... Um, what's the right word, density in the deck that Mm. I'm going to see something. I would add, by the way, about trying things out and avoiding trying things out. I'm definitely on the cautious side as a player. I know I am. And for instance, the current thing on your feet playing Bless Mateo, I have included more things than I usually would that are about just chucking them in there and having a bit of fun. That feels a little bit different to me. And in the most recent episode, that I'm not going to spoil the episode, but there was definitely a moment where I'm, I'm talking to the audience saying, I, I could spend two actions doing this bless-related stuff. Is it actually a luxury to do that? Am I actually not making progress and, and somehow getting in the way of my own success by doing that? The, the image I have in my head is of those amazing multiplayer decks that assemble so many pieces. I've seen so many of them at events. You've got Leo with his BAR with yeah. 40 ammo on it. The reason he's got a 40 ammo BAR is that other players have carried him to a certain extent to allow him to get there. Yeah. And actually, I'd say good play that I've enjoyed watching or, or being a part of is where the player is still holding their own as they get there. Maybe they have another weapon and they sort of assemble all the pieces and assemble the resources they need in hand and then suddenly the BAR is in, in position. Or, you know, a, a high intellect seeker is just gently getting clues but also setting up as they kind of go along. Weirdly, my experience of convention playing is often that you end up playing with people who, well, didn't know what everyone else was going to bring but are often also mm. solo players themselves. And that they'll yeah. they'll bring like a little self-contained deck that doesn't mm. could do a little bit of everything without having to trust their teammates to to build in that slack into their decks. It's like no 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 you don't need to give me that vicious blow because I'm I'm running backstab so I can deal with three health enemies myself. Yeah, and it's sort of yeah not relying on that and that raises a really good related question which is what's the norm and the the unconscious bias here I think is that we talk about the game as a multiplayer game. But then when I think about it, I think predominantly I play solo. You know I play solo. And I think predominantly people play this game solo. So it's this weird thing as well of saying, well, why is solo different when we could flip it on its head and say 
is it multiplayer that's different? And have, you know, I've noticed that snuck into our first looks a little bit where we assume that the cards are going to be used multiplayer and actually they might not be. It's like, how does this work? How do you do, say, the cursed spell suite solo? Yeah. You know, the whole like the whole thing of Trish and Jackie is it falls down because there's only one of you. So what do you think makes a good solo card then? What makes you look at a card and think that will work in my new solo campaign? Man, you're just coming out with the good questions today, aren't you, Peter? Yeah. I feel like it's it's always nice seeing just Clutech in factions that aren't Seeker. <laughs> yeah. So Guardian Clutech and maybe say maybe rogue clue cards mm-hmm. always help because they, you can sneak those into decks that don't have seeker access to cover your clue mm-hmm. needs mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. almost depending on the campaign you're in you can kind of rely on tricks rather than having to spend a lot of your deck boosting your intellect up to be able to investigate yeah that links back to what you said about the how many clues on a location yeah and Intel report perhaps drops in power at three and four player because paying four resources for two clues, that's such a small proportion of the total clues you need that it's maybe not as potent as swooping into the high shard location, paying four and getting those clues and the VP and moving on in solo or in in two player. Yeah, I I was going to say something a bit more general to your question of what makes a good solo card, which was going to be clarity of purpose but then actually you just said a good clue card and it was like yeah yeah that's really what i meant (laughs) in my head but yeah the, the related thought was cards that have powerful but somewhat niche applications right engineering those situations in solo feels a lot harder right than having those situations come up in multiplayer you want fewer frills on your card really don't you yeah yeah like a ward of, what's it called? Ward of Brilliance? Ward of Radiance. Ward of Radiance, that's it, sorry. Ward of Radiance versus Ward of Protection. Yeah. The Ward of Protection yeah. feels a lot better because you don't also have to work around the clue. The the bless. The bless. Bless requirements mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, yeah. Potentially, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's a pretty straightforward card, but yeah, yeah. Despite what I've said about the unconscious bias of of thinking solo focusedly, we have actually then focused mostly in our deck building here now on solo. And I don't know, maybe we should turn on our head the questions you had to me about what do I think about building a solo deck and think about what do you think about building a multiplayer deck? I I guess what I've got out of this conversation, Frank, is it's almost like you can think of your team as a single big deck that you, you draw through three times as fast or, or four times as fast. Because mm. you still need to cover the same things in your party. And actually, understanding the scenario, while you can you can pick up some slack in a team and, and compensate for, for not knowing the specifics of every card, mm-hmm. there's usually someone who's good enough at something that you'll get some help if you're stuck at any point. Despite that... I think you still you still should try and structure your multiplayer team in the same way as you structure your single player deck. Mm. So think to yourself, how much of my team? I mean, obviously discuss this with your teammates, but how much of mm-hmm. of our team should be devoted to finding clues? I've I've noticed there's some campaigns where you know you kind of want a clue and a half, 
So a dedicated cluer than someone else who can clue. Some campaigns you want more fighting because there's a lot more enemies coming out. Some mm. campaigns it's definitely worth having enemy management in the terms of fighting and evading yeah. rather than just yeah. hitting things when they appear. Yeah, we put that example sort of more concretely as well. If we're going into Innsmouth, if we had to build a four-player team now, I'd be pretty tempted to take two dedicated fighters over a fighter and an evader because there's so many engage effects that yeah. it might just be worth, like our deep one solution might just be worth gun them all down. And as a result, if they've got two dedicated, we're going to hit things, probably we want two dedicated cluers at that point as well. Yeah, yeah, potentially, or or a fighter and a cluer, like. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a new guy coming out. I think, um, Dick Firearm or something. Oh yeah, yeah interesting. Might be quite good. A combined fight and cluer. Yes. Anyway, yeah, I, I and I think that that's kind of what I would take from this this conversation. It's worth thinking in a bit more depth about what proportions of everyone's deck is going to be de- dedicated towards clues and fighting. I don't know if you've ever had that situation in multiplayer as well, where someone said, I'm playing, I don't know, Seth. You're like, okay. And they're like, yeah, I'm going to do a mystic event Seth or something. Okay, cool. That sounds good. And you make the assumption that they're going to therefore have events that do a bit of everything. Mm. And then they turn up and their mystic event Seth is all evasion spells or all whatever it is, all clue spells. And you're like, oh, you've taken on the role of cluer, but in an investigator that I didn't think necessarily did that very well. Yeah. Um, that can be a bit of a surprise. Yeah. Um, and there's sometimes the freedom in multiplayer to say, you know what, in this deck, I'm going to include no clue cards. I think this campaign doesn't have any situations where we all need to get clues. I will be purely fighting and evading enemies. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you can, you can, as long as you're able to deal with things like the encounter deck early, you could... Someone could have a deck that builds up to unstoppable wrecking ball later in the in the scenario, mm, mm-hmm. and who needs more yeah. carrying early on, especially if you've got someone who can hit the ground running fast. So like yeah. a I don't know, like a Winnie or something like that, who could be yeah, dealing Winnie with stuff and earlier. Ashcan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Ashcan as well, perfect example. They can take up the, the the slack early on, and then your your kind of wrecking ball of Yorick with a million a million assets uh, mm-hmm. shows up more later on, like indestructible. I'm very t- ready to take you home. I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm not saying anything like that isn't obvious, really. <laughs> when you think about mm. teams, you should try and have a balanced team. I don't think that's a particularly hot take. It's just, I think, thinking about it from the prism of a, of a solo deck, you try to do the same thing, but with with three players, right? You need to be able mm. to tackle everything that comes up. And certainly, you know, there there is more slack, so you... you you're not as subject really to the whims of variance as you are when you're playing solo. You're unlikely to get one card which totally ruins your all your plans. You can get unlucky and then three encounter cards combo that come out and you're you know you get three enemies and suddenly you're absolutely swamped with enemies. But just by the fact that there's more of you and you're drawing cards, it's it's it smooths that kind of spikiness out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I started off this sentence sort of Kind of lost well, track of it you said along. this wasn't too great a take. But yeah, I think you actually raise a really interesting take. If we build a multiplayer team where every deck needs a couple of turns set up, we're essentially falling into the same trap as solo. If I get these five assets down, I'll be unstoppable. 
if, if it's if each investigator does that and so maybe there's something here about building multiplayer teams where there are some investigators who are ready to go quickly and there are others that build up to that position and that sort of speed of setup is a, an element that we maybe haven't verbalized before yeah and uh, you mentioned winnie i think that's a really good example winnie's normally has cards she can commit from the off which means she's going she's rolling she's getting more cards she's not saying oh i've, I've got six more cards i need to play before i can do anything yeah i mean i guess the other thing is that it lets you build more into whatever the focus of your investigator is as well so yeah. so you know we used that example of that yorick deck earlier if if yorick mm-hmm. is a goes full on in counter management and taking damage Suddenly he's got extra slots to start taking maybe some healing cards, some of the soap cards, and Mm -hmm. that's not hurting the progression of the team through the scenario. It's Mm -hmm. just really giving Mm -hmm. us some some extra um, assurance that if things go bad with the encounter deck, we've got someone who could take a punch. Yeah, yeah, and you look at that list in solo, it has 10 assets, 10 events, 10 skills, and 10 cards that are focused on clues, I think. Two, four, six, eight, ten, no, 12 cards. If Yorick no longer needs to do clues, suddenly got a third of the deck has freed up to do more things around his ability and choosing which card, which assets to replay, and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. I exactly, want to add yeah. at this point as well, mystics, because we've not mentioned too many mystics here. It's really striking to me that you played Agnes solo, and we kind of went back and forth on is she a good solo investigator? Because she answers some of the things we've mentioned, such as she has encounter deck mitigation in her willpower and her reasonable agility of three. But then also, because she's a mystic, she likes to have a setup with willpower replacement effects or other stat replacement by willpower effects, which means she can really be at the mercy of her own deck as well as the encounter deck. Yeah. You know, if your solution for dealing with enemies is, is uh, shriveling and you haven't seen it yet, you're attacking with your combat of two to try and fight your way past a ghoul or a rats or whatever other nasty it is from the encounter deck. And I think there's something there about mystics, if they can have a good start to a scenario, can, can be really proficient solo investigators because they don't need to worry about spreading what they're doing across all of their stats. Yeah, yeah. They they might hit the occasional. You need to pass an agility test to do this thing. That could be difficult. But yeah, they broadly speaking, they can put everything into one stat. They can focus on that in terms of their icon spread, and they do that. So there's there's a strength there, and then also the weakness of if you don't see those cards, you're struggling. Um, I think we've talked about deck building a lot here, more than I th- I thought we would. Uh, yeah, but I guess that's the primary way that you you can mitigate the impacts of solo, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. And I suppose creeping along behind our discussion is that solo is a little bit harder than multiplayer. But that's, that's a bold claim. Yeah. You've done a classic uh, social media engagement strategy then. <laughs> yeah. How long have you thought that solo, solo is... is harder? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Click to reveal answer. Um... I don't necessarily think it's harder. I think there's, it's maybe requires more thought about your specifics of your deck building beforehand. And I think mm-hmm. the crucial thing is that probably makes it 
tougher to succeed or tougher to really rinse those scenarios is mm. the the variance from the encounter deck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, like, getting a card which effectively doesn't tax any actions is huge when you're playing solo. Mm. You're just like, mm. yeah, I'll take it. Yeah, the, the locked door situation in solo where you pull a locked door or an obscuring fog. Yeah, and you, you just, just, you just cleared your location. Oh, yeah. Ha, 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 ha. Like, freebie. But then, yeah, the flip side, you pull that on your two-eye location in, in multiplayer before you've got the clues. It's like, ah, oh, we need to get the agility character over here or we need to smash one of these investigates first. can really slow you down. I think actually even interrogating my own question is solo harder. It raises all kinds of questions of what, what does winning look like? And like you said, if it's about a fully clearing a scenario, then yes, I think it is harder to fully clear scenarios when you only have one investigator because they have to do everything. They have to cover the same amount of ground as multiple investigators and get the same proportion as clues as the the, the team. But... Yeah, but that's, I suppose there's that aspect of it. Maybe it's more just, it is different, isn't it? Yeah. And maybe the other thing is the sort of the swinginess, the variance, as you said, that it might be that you're having a really easy scenario in solo and then a couple of dud turns and you're on the ropes in the way that it takes a much bigger swing in multiplayer to really shut the whole team down. Um, a recent example, actually, playing Return to Circle Undone, our Seeker took two three damage hits from pretty much consecutive encounter draws. So went from zero out of seven damage to three out of seven to six out of seven. But it was in a scenario where they could go and resign and they just made their way to the exit and resigned. And the other two players, we carried on. Yeah. <laughs> we spent their clues before they left to advance the act and we finished the scenario fine and you just can't do that in solo can you because if you i mean you could just go and resign but you'd have to navigate your way through all the enemies to get there and blah 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 you can kind of get get the picture i suppose but yeah the freedom there that even though one person's scenario was being derailed hard the team's wasn't is a huge difference to me the other example I know we've used on the cast before is if you don't deal with one enemy and then the very next mythos you draw another enemy. Yes, yes. It's like you're in the in the quicksand there. I've got to mention this though, Peter, as well. I nearly mentioned it earlier. You were talking about getting swamped by enemies in multiplayer. Do you want to talk about the snake pit? Oh, God, don't start me on that snake pit. <laughs> the worst game of Arkham I've had in ages. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we hit... Well, we... The Snake Pit, is it, it's it's a new location, right? Yeah, yeah. In Return, to in, in Return Age. to Forgotten Age, I don't, I never remember that scenario being as hard as it was then. But it, it, uh, I got, you got me so annoyed. I was quite wound up, as you'll remember. Mm-hmm. But just absorbed a full turn until we managed to get everyone through the Snake Pit because three enemies appear in the Snake Pit and they're all vengeance enemies, which we were trying to avoid killing. Yeah. Although in retrospect, we should have just killed them um, and be done with it. So. Yeah, popped up an investigator end of their turn there, and that was it really. Um, they took three damage and got poisoned, and the whole mm. rest of the game just sucked up actions with the rest of the, someone else in the team having to evade three times a turn for the three snakes, which then just readied and engaged them again. Yeah. Properly pinned down there if you're not going to kill them. Yeah, yeah. 
and so that location in solo it's it's um one eye snakes isn't it so in solo you only get one snake so you move in one action to evade and you move out again it's taxed you a single action but in three or four player it's three snakes so it's a whole investigator's turn which as a proportion of the of the actions of the round isn't any different from that is it it's still a third if you're three player it's just that they're trapped there and and have to do that repeatedly in perpetuity yeah yeah, I think there should be more uh, scaling effects in multiplayer where you get enemy uh, enemy eye, enemy power investigator to um, really, yeah, pin down those uh, confident multiplayer players. <laughs> <laughs> we put as well, are there any advantages to playing this game solo? Because the implicit point here is that there are lots of disadvantages. And I've noted down that you can play a, a scenario really quickly solo I do that. I quite enjoy the fact that I can jump down. I don't have to think about too many things beyond what's my deck doing and what's the encounter deck doing and just crack on. And I I really like that in terms of just the point you made earlier about I know scenarios quite well. A lot of that has been organic. I've not sat down to study scenarios deliberately. It's that I've played them quite a lot and I've played them quite a lot because I can play them quite quickly. And I just have familiarity in that way, I think. So it's like any kind of muscle that learn in that way and I think also on this there is also the freedom in solo this links back to what you said about maybe only needing a handful of clues to finish a scenario you can finish scenarios really quickly in solo yeah not just the first action resign obviously but (laughs) on scenarios where there's a sliding scale of what you need in theory you can race in and and do things quickly. I'm thinking as well of playing Ursula here, where she's ready to investigate from the off and she can just get so far ahead of the encounter deck and close out scenarios really easily. Yeah, yeah. Where where do you want to go to now? Well, good question. Bearing all this in mind, Frank, do you have any particular feelings as to who is a good investigator to take solo? Yeah, I feel like this has slightly arisen organically through the discussion as well hasn't it so used organically twice in in quick succession (laughs) for me it feels like having a high intellect and then having a way of handling enemies baked into your card is a really nice combination for solo so the example i gave then of ursula she's four and four for intellect and agility if you draw that first turn enemy she can evade it and she's already got her intellect high enough that she can try and get clues and she even has a baked in clue ability just to get you know an extra action ability which is so powerful in solo so i jumped to her and you mentioned the pop <laughs> the very popular corset investigator roland banks who i believe can be quite good in solo because he can handle enemies in theory and doing that also gets him clues so it's double progress for the price of single progress yeah yeah i, I quite like the sound of that yeah I think that that combination is pretty good. I've noted down Finn as well. It's the same same stat offering as Ursula, the four intellect and four agility, and it's extra actions again to help you evade. He can he can move quickly through a scenario, getting clues, evading enemies. He might get held up by willpower, but that's obviously campaign and scenario dependent. And I popped down as well Mark because I've played him on the cast. People have heard that, and Silas. And I remember when we did our Silas episode, and you were saying. Put true understanding in Silas. And I was saying, put perception in Silas. And that another example of the different 
approaches, the multiplayer versus the solo approach. I love perception in Silas because you commit it, gets his intellect up to four. If you didn't need it, you pull it back. If you did need it, you get a card. It does a lot of work for what for a deficiency of Silas's. So yeah, I throw that in there as <laughs> well. That, I suppose that, that you made that sound like the 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 collective noun, a deficiency of Silas's. A deficiency of saying, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you have an all Silas team. Yeah. <laughs> and I suppose the broader thing here then is what classes, broadly speaking, might be okay at solo. And for me, survivors, because they have so many ways of making progress, even when you don't think they are. Seekers, because they can get clues so efficiently. And then I've also marked down probably rogues. I mean, no, this is massive generalization. It's so investigator dependent. Rogues often have some way of dealing with enemies because of because of their agility, you know, Preston notwithstanding. And they might have decent intellect. Basically, the streetwise stats, street, you know, that's why streetwise was so powerful for so long, because you can get clues and you can evade enemies with it. Yes. All in one solution in the way that higher education doesn't offer that same option unless you're running spells to use your willpower or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. What's your take on that, though, as a... You've played, what, Calvin solo somewhat recently? Agnes solo? Yeah. <laughs> it's not necessarily fitting into this bracket at all, yeah? No, it's not. Calvin's an interesting one, because he can theoretically be very good at everything, can't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And he's he's got some resistance to... I mean, he wants to take damage early on. I guess the mm. problem is, because it's... it There's that variant, isn't there? If he just gets mm-hmm. something which jams him down, he can't. He, he's got less margin forever later on in the scenario when he's got all his stats up. Uh, but yeah, he, he he would spring to mind to me. And, and uh, did you mention Pete? I mean, we mentioned Pete a little while ago. Yeah, we did earlier on. Yeah, yeah. But just another sta- survivor. Yeah, starting with you can play with, for built-in decent fighting and clueing is such mm-hmm. a boon for him. And I'd say, generally speaking, our fighty guardians often trade intellect and clue capacity for being better fighters. So you think about like Zoe with intellect two, Mark with intellect two, Leo's only got intellect three. They normally have higher willpower and higher combat, generally speaking. And that can be trickier in solo, I'd say, because clues are king. And in multiplayer, I play a Zoe, it's like, I am an efficient killer. Don't worry about that. Uh, enemies, I will do enemies for you all day long. You can go through a scenario in solo and not see many enemies. So their focus can be a little bit superfluous. So yeah, have we got to the bottom of what's the difference between playing solo and playing multiplayer? I don't know. To be honest, when we started, and I'm going to be candid here, Frank, I thought they were very different beasts. There was, mm-hmm. Like you said, I thought there was a much bigger difference between solo and multiplayer. But as we talked, I've seen more and more the similarities between the two. Mm. I still think it's it's a it's a slightly different animal and, and, and needs to be wrangled differently. I think compressing all of the tools you need into into one deck, having to provide them, that's probably the biggest difference. So you need to be really careful about that. And you're more at the what did I what was the phrase I used earlier on? Mercy of the encounter deck. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're more vulnerable to that i think but outside of that i think a lot of the fundamentals apply i don't know what you think do you agree with that or not Mm. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm left with thinking about investigators that have extra actions are really shine in solo because obviously that that extra action is worth more. Going back to that example you gave right at the start of drawing a two action treachery, if that's only taxing half of your turn instead of two thirds, that is significant in the yeah. way that uh, it, it it would be less significant overall in multiplayer. I think that's right. I think there's still this. It feels like we've come such a long way with the game about how we think about teams, preparation, deck building, even just the idea of what does a good deck look like. I feel like the more we've learned about the game, the less confident I am with that. And the sort of this, I mean, no, there's a lot more cards, obviously, but it just becomes more and more blurry. You're that idea you were suggesting of a deck that really has a focus around maybe an investigator's ability could be a really good deck, but does it? necessarily shine in a particular player count maybe not you know all those those decks that do amazing things with massive asset setups i think they're great fun to play but yeah they probably fall apart solo probably i, I could be wrong <laughs> doubt i'm left with doubt doubt not conviction cool well as ever we'd love to hear from listeners as well we've sort of like given people more questions than answers and then say let us know Yeah, I hope you've enjoyed being made really uncertain about this topic. Join (laughs) us in our uncertainty. Yeah, and we do love to hear from people. You can write to us. We're drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com. We're on drawn to the flame uh, on Facebook and Twitter. And we're also on Patreon. We've got a Discord for patrons only. It's a really fun place to talk about the game. So you can become a patron, come talk about this episode and many other things with us there. Peter, how can people get in touch with you? I am United everywhere. That's U-N-I-T-L-E-D. I'm on Discord and Twitter and uh, Steam and Instagram is D.United. So yeah, please say hello. How about you, Frank? I'm FB on Twitter. That's E-P-H underscore B-E-E. And I'm around the place as Zooey Glass or Zozo. Please say hello as well. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.